When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Teresa Grobaker. Teresa is the CEO of Real Estate Consortia, and today she is trying to put real estate, America's largest asset class, on the blockchain. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Teresa, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems you're working on today. Yeah, absolutely. So I started the first online real estate brokerage in San Francisco about a decade ago. And that's before COVID was cool, which I can right. say that joke now. That didn't work last year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> along the way, I put America's largest, uh, well, the world's largest asset class, which is American real estate on my own private patent pending blockchain. And I did it as an offensive move before China and Russia did it to us. And along the way, Bob Goldberg, who's the CEO of the National Association of Realtors, um, he came along and he's like, you're ours. This is ours. And I was like, yes, I, I made it for you. So I'm glad we agree on this. Um, the National Association of Realtors is the largest lobbying force on Capitol Hill, and it's the largest uh, trade organization in the world. So um, partnered with them and went through their accelerator class in 2019. And after that, I was pretty burned out. Actually, um, I took two years off of Consortia because I was tired of spelling the word blockchain to realtors. There's nothing more painful than trying to explain that uh, to people who are really afraid of it. And then um, come this fall, uh, presented a sister company for NAR. I managed three of their companies and then another prop tech company outside of NAR and put another company on stage with me. And then there was like all this renewed interest in blockchain. So um, it's really been going full force in the last, I'd say three months now. Yeah, I was going to ask you this question about real estate because realtors tend to be way behind the curve in adopting technology. And so this seems like it must be an uphill battle for you to um, kind of get people to pay attention to something that they're not uh, not even closely familiar with. But uh, you're, you're based in the San Francisco area, so I'm assuming some of the realtors there are a little ahead of the curve when it comes to adopting new technology. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say, so I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Um, up until probably about two years ago, real estate on the resi side was probably about 
two decades behind any other industry that had gone to technology. So whether that be like insure tech, right, or um, fintech, for example, uh, prop tech was probably about two decades behind. Now I'd say we're we're pretty we we've closed that gap a lot um, in San Francisco. There has been a warm uh, welcome for blockchain and technology, especially. You know, what was really interesting is there was this uh, broker from one of my favorite brokerages in the world, and he had really helped Zillow get access to organized real estate 10 years ago. And since then, Zillow has really taken the data from the realtors and then sells it back to us as an industry. And so that doesn't leave a very good taste in the mouth for the practitioner. For the consumer, you know, that's a great experience. We get to go on Zillow and see how much our home is worth. So what's interesting is there's been a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Like, what is this blockchain company? Or they look at a lot of prop tech companies, the, the realtors do, with like a an eye of skepticism. Like, are you here as friend? Or are you here as foe? Are you going to take my job away? So um, it has kind of mixed reviews and it really takes a long time to earn the trust of the industry, which has been probably more important. Uh, that's been the more important part of my job and my work um, than actually building the code itself. So you've uh, you spent a lot of time um, kind of monitoring the other startups and a lot of people are trying to automate the realtor out of um, out of business and uh, turn real buying and selling a real estate more into a commodity. Um, obviously, uh, buying and selling a house is much more complicated than, than just buying a book or something like that. Um, do, you, do you foresee the time in the future when a realtor could be automated out of existence? So, yeah, I mean, I have mixed feelings about that, right? Um, so I was uh, I was at the manager's council in San Francisco probably about five years ago now, and there was an old school realtor broker at the table, and she was putting up a fight about email or something totally obviously like necessary in a transaction. And usually like my job is being two decades younger than these people. I just sat against the wall quietly and just, you know, I was seen but not heard, right? Like I sat at the kitty table. And this is when I finally decided to speak up. I, I was like, wait a minute, like if we don't adopt technology, this table that we're sitting at doesn't exist in 30 years. This is an industry doesn't exist. And I have kids and I want them to have the option. They'll probably say, no, thanks, mom, like real estate sucks. But like if they want to go into real estate, I want them to have the option to go into it. And that's when I got really passionate about it. Yeah, there are a lot of prop tech companies um, that are started by more technical uh, engineers who just have bought maybe one house. Maybe they've never even bought a house at all. And they're like, oh, let's just obviate the entire realtor class. Let's just get rid of them. Um, I understand where their frustration is because the process still remains antiquated. Nothing's really changed in the industry in 20 or 30 years before all this prop tech. Some of it's come along and really pushed us far. But up until then, nothing had changed. The general concept of how a transaction happens hadn't changed in a hundred years. Like this is true. Like the way the contracts are formulated, the real estate law that codifies how we interact with each other hadn't changed in that long. So we're, I think the, the realtor's job is, and where it's going is to be more of the consultant to advise the first time home buyer, even the second time buy or sell the investor 
It's the knowledge that they have and the relationship that they have to say, I will explain this process to you. Now, I don't think all realtors are created equal. I will say that. Some are very good at their craft. They attend the trade shows. They they read up on the industry. They know what's happening in the stock market and the bond markets. They know the mortgage pricing. They know the laws and how they change. Those are the best of who really deserve that spot at the table with their clients because they are truly a trusted advisor. And I think that that's what the industry should aspire to keep as part of the transaction, the people who actually are accretive to the process. So most most uh, jobs are having, they're not totally being automated out of existence, but there's a lot of tasks that are going away. And, and certainly in, in the real estate world, is no different than that. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the tasks that are getting automated and how a transaction can happen quicker now and and in the future than it has in the past? Yeah, totally. So I'm famous for going on stage and saying, follow the money. And the transaction, real estate is, is merely a financial transaction with a hard asset that's backed by a loan or that the cash is going into buy. So the transaction really starts when the borrower, the consumer goes and fills out a mortgage application. 60% of our deals are still done with financing. So that part of the transaction where the whole application can happen online and the underwriting package can be put together online, that's a huge part of the automation. There is fintech that goes through and automatically pulls, for example, bank statements and assets. Um, So that's getting automated. Now, when we turn into the underwriting part, we're starting to see the AVMs come. So that's the valuation models. Um, So that's huge as well, because now we have enough data we're pulling from the MLS, and that's the multiple listing service. So whenever you look at a property, for example, on Zillow or Redfin, that's pulling from the data from an MLS. So that data then goes into a report that generates a valuation of the property. What just got released in October is huge, is that Fannie Mae now says that um, the appraisal can all be done through desktop. This is huge because we don't have enough people going into appraisals as a profession. So now the appraisal has to happen through other means. I, for a customer earlier this year, paid $1,900 for an appraisal. Appraisals since the beginning of COVID are up 30%. This is becoming a huge barrier. It's a huge cost. There's like a lot of time that's built in. It's a lot of friction on the appraisal process. So when Fannie announced this, there's a company that we work with. It's a Blackstone company. The appraisal can now happen on the phone. And I know this is a podcast, but I'm like putting my my phone in my hand right now. So this is a desktop appraisal that can happen. And we're mapping out how do we do this, right? The realtor comes through, can take the photos because the realtor is licensed. They are insured and they work through a FaceTime app with the appraiser who could be in in an office in the middle of the country or somewhere an hour away, right? And they, with the instructions, can do the appraisal that way. So that's what we're looking at as an industry, as far as automating a lot of the process. It's There hasn't been a, a way to remove the human up until now. And that's because the laws for every state and the laws for underwriting for every kind of loan, every type of loan that there is, still needs a human to like look through 
either the asset itself and the contracts for the real estate part of the transaction, or to go through line by line on the underwriting and make sure that everything is done correctly. So, so Trent is in the process of looking for a house, or he should be. Yeah. Um, can can you can you steer him through the first? This would be his first house. What what he should be looking for? Yeah, totally. So um, you can go online, right? I'm sure you are. Yep. Uh, we call it real estate porn, right? Uh, there's a good <laughs> kit on SNL um, about real estate. Uh, anyway, uh, enough said. You can look it up. You can YouTube that. Um, so you go through and you say, okay, what, um, what meets my criteria for my family or for myself? What kind of living conditions do I want? Um, and then you go through the home affordability calculator. Realtor.com has a great calculator um, for that. And it takes into account your pity, right? So it's your principal, your interest, your taxes, and then your insurance. Pity, P-I-T-I. And that cannot exceed either 43% of your gross income or up to 45 if you're going to do a jumbo loan. And the jumbo loans vary and the loan th- uh, thresholds vary by county. So sorry if this is getting too nerdy, but this, this part of it, because I do mortgages and I still sell real estate and I manage realtors, right? Like this is critical that we understand. And it's shocking to me that there's not enough out there as far as education, because I always have to explain the pity to the consumer. This should be like taught in high school, right? Like that's my opinion that we don't put enough focus on financial literacy, especially when the house is most Americans' biggest financial asset. So can you, can you sell a house in, in all the other 50 states in the US? I am, so you can only sell where you're licensed. And that goes for mortgages and for real estate. So, so then you, you will like never get licensed to sell something in Moscow. Then I'd take it. I don't think Moscow would like me selling real estate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, we're just uh, pushing the envelope. When we move into like a, a metaverse style um, next generation internet to work with. How is how is real estate that profession going to change, um, and does it become truly an international thing where you could actually sell across country lines? If it's in the metaverse, I don't think there are any licensing issues. It's funny because there are a few practitioners who are working toward that. I just got off a call. One of my business partners um, in building this blockchain uh, protocol and tool is Blackstone, which is the largest private equity firm in the world. So we were halfway joking, halfway serious about how we get into the metaverse as a team. Like, do we offer title and services and settlement um, in the metaverse? And I was jokingly, I said, you know what? I'm going to build the NAR building, and I'm going to put my, I'm going to put Bob Goldberg's face on the side of the building, <laughs> <laughs> and give it to him and say Merry Christmas. Um, so that's what we're. I'm sure he's going to love that. Um, but that, yeah, we're looking at that. Like, how do we blend the NFT world with the metaverse, the non-fungible token, uh, the representation either of the property or property that's being sold or fractionalized through an NFT? How do we bring that into the world of the metaverse? Does it have a digital twin out there, um, kind of like Second Life? Um, so I think everybody's eager and, and mapping it out to see what is the value creation what kind of data can we extract about the consumer in doing that? Um, how do we t- 
teach financial literacy? Like, how do we do micro loans through ether, right, on the metaverse? These are all just kind of brain candy right now. And I'm sure that these are going to roll out as products. So at the risk of being one of the people that asks you for this pitch that that you've grown weary of, of giving, could you explain why real estate is a a the sort of problem that you might want to solve with a blockchain and how you in particular are approaching that? That's an excellent question. So um, this is my second blockchain company. And one dreary night, I was reading all of Dodd-Frank. And somewhere in the witching hour, I came to the line that says, every asset held by a bank has to be um, documented by a ledger. And I thought, hmm, blockchain is a ledger. That would be a great use case for real estate. Cool. So that's what this is. A, the, the intent was to put the realtor in the middle of the transaction as a steward, right? Because I still believe you need a qualified advisor. Second is this solves Dodd-Frank. So what we've learned, I, I put blockchain on the shelf for two years. I refused to work on it. I was like actually five minutes away from calling Bob Goldberg and be like, you want blockchain? You can flip and have it. And then Dave and Tyler, who run the VC arm, they were like, nope, you're the CEO. I was like, thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate that. So luckily during COVID, we all had so much time on our phones. We were like reading about blockchain. And then this huge NFT like was sold for $69 million through Christie's. So now we know that like NFTs are this thing. So technology also advanced to this point where the infrastructure for blockchain now exists. So we know that there's an NFT. We know that there's a marketplace. We have a platform that we're building on that Amazon endorses. A member of of NAR flew out to meet with the CEO of this company just to make sure it's legit and it's real. So what we see this as, as the, the NFT gets minted, what is an NFT? It's a package of data. So instead, you know, like what's really popular are these art NFTs. I'm looking at art on my wall. So instead of the art being the NFT, the report for my dishwasher that just got fixed, right? Imagine it breaks, the service guy comes out, that gets minted as an NFT. The digital appraisal, I'm holding my phone again, the digital appraisal gets minted as an NFT. That's a data file. And so Consortia is really just the plumbing that all of these NFTs pass through between the data originators over to capital markets. Because the capital markets, based on Dodd-Frank, need to know the condition of the asset. So you have the asset, you have loan origination, and you have secondary markets. The secondary markets create the liquidity that takes out the primary market's loan and then puts more cash in so that more home buyers can get their house. So at both of these stages, there's this necessary information, the data about the property that needs to be transferred between the parties. And that's really where I see the utility of blockchain around the provenance of the house. And and Consortia is your company, right? It is, yes. And um, never did a raise. We participated in the accelerator program, so they have some warrants in our company. So they would probably be like the largest shareholder on the cap chart. Um, But other than that, I just kind of refused to. NAR was very adamant that this is Switzerland, um, this kind of product. Um, So I have to be neutral because I have to bring all of organized real estate, all of title, and all of capital markets along on one platform. So to do that, I could never like align myself with the brand or take invest. I I just viewed it. It would just get very skewed if I took investor money. So it's been a long and lonely ride. Um, I probably could have raised like a lot of money back in 2019 or 2018 in doing an ICO 
initial coin offering or something like that, but just really opted not to, to keep the cap chart clean and the ethos of the company very focused on just the betterment of the real estate industry. So how, how long do you see before every house title is an NFT? So I think that realistically, you know, 10 years for the whole country to come along, I think that in the next five years, we should be at a point where we have a good majority or, you know, like a good enough, I would say between like 30 and 50% within the next five years, I would say in 10 years, we have the country, like most of us covered, you know, it's like that, um, like those T-Mobile ads, like we cover most of the country. So something like that. Um, I, and I think, so here, here's some things that I get asked about, like, do I think that the counties will record their title? So when we said no, thank you to her majesty's land record, we created 3,600 fiefdoms. And in doing so, we have a lot of politicians that need to come along with this idea and they will probably be the last to jump on board and they too will follow the money. So they will meet and they'll caucus with other neighboring county assessors records and property tax issues will come up and they'll see, I think that by sharing the data through blockchain, they will create more liquidity and prosperity in their neighborhoods. And so they will then adopt. Um, And so for title completely to go to blockchain, we've really got to have the county assessor's records on blockchain. And I think eventually we'll get there. It's just going to take a lot of time because they are susceptible to political cycles and who's in charge and who has blockchain on their mindset. Um, Unless it's prescribed from the top down at a federal level, um, which very much could happen because we're gradually going into the space of fair housing and home affordability. So um, potentially it moves faster, but from what I know about um, local county records, I think it's going to be, it's going to be a big push, a big lift. So you said that the prosperity would increase in these counties if the records were put on the blockchain. So could you walk me through the logic of that? Because it it's not clear to me why it would make such a big deal to have the records on the blockchain, this distributed ledger. Like why would that be the key to making, to generating so much more prosperity in these communities? I know, right? It's It, it almost seems antithetical. And I get asked this a lot. I made a, made a presentation to um, the CMLS, which is the largest real estate um, MLS board in the country. And little did I know until after the meeting that um, the DOJ and the um, FTC were in the meeting. Like, really would have liked to know that ahead of time. Nice. Um, so I'm talking about consumer data and like um, protecting the industry. So one way, so, so you would think that if there's more information, the capital markets flood in more money, right? This is the the antithesis of what you're asking, right? So if they're putting in, if they have more comfort, they're going to pump in more money. Here's the thing though, the institutions, the pension funds, the insurance companies, they already have set aside and allocated through their investment policy statements, which is a Wall Street investment term, right? They've already allocated what percentage of their portfolios are to go into real estate. So just having better data is not going to like swing the, the boards of these organizations if you follow. So it's not that that's not going to move the needle so much that like floods the, you know, floods the market with all this new capital. That's that's not going to happen. Um, so what it does do is it equalizes. We were just on a call with Blackstone yesterday. It neutralizes and it standardizes the data. So 
what happens in appraisals today is there's a lot of bias, especially so in inner cities, it's harder to get an appraisal done. And in the very rural bits, it's very hard to get appraisers to go out there. So what happens is you've already got this disparity where it's more expensive for those areas to get appraisals done. And who that impacts are minorities at the end of the day. If you, because in loans, we have, we have to, Section 8 of the 1003, which is the mortgage app, we have to state which color their skin is. Like we have to say where they're from. It's awful, but we have to do it by law. So we know now that those people pay more for their appraisals. And we know that their houses are not appraised at the same level as Caucasian white people. This is just, there's a lot of data out there now. It's very unfortunate. And we're trying to turn the tide on this. So that's one example of standardizing and sterilizing the data. The second is we, we have more facts about the inside of the house. So now we're going to more of a merit-based system with consortia. The idea that we're sharing information. Okay, great. I took care of everything in my house. So we know that like on a merit base my asset is cleaner than somebody else's who's not taking care of their house. And so I should deserve to have a better interest rate on a loan, right? Like if I go and apply for refinance or I go to apply for another loan, Teresa's taken care of her house better than her neighbor. So that is, um, I think that's very helpful. And we also can see that there, it'll be more of an open market, right? Like if you see that there's an asset that has all of the data there, you know, the capital markets can just go knock on the door and say, hey, can we buy your house? We think this is the fair market of the house. So um, that we're, we're really focused on doing good for the consumer in building this product. So a lot of it is in standardizing the data, making it more available, and thereby allowing prices to better reflect the reality of the situation on the ground, the, the state of the house, who's uh, been in charge of, of maintaining it, that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. We think the house should sit on its own merit, not just like who was able to hire the best realtor at the country club, who was able to do the best marketing on the property, which is great. That's great for American real estate, what that does. Um, but maybe there is a, a more democratic way of presenting the assets to financial markets. So as you, as you worked your way through COVID, you, you being in the kind of the middle of the San Francisco market, you, you saw lots of more turmoil than other parts of the country. Can, can you kind of step us through what all was, was happening in, in that kind of rather dynamic situation there? <laughs> the bloodbath? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a disaster. It was awful. Um, so I was one of those people who left the city. I broke up with her a year ago. She had a lot of breakups. It was a very hard year for her. I remember driving downtown um, this one day and the, like, so San Francisco trucks can park. They're not supposed to, but they do just in the middle of the street. Every block had a truck, just people moving out, like on a random Tuesday, just like everybody's leaving, like trucks everywhere, moving trucks, U-Hauls. You couldn't get a moving truck fast enough to get out of the city. Um, I had friends who wanted me to sell their house and they were house hunting in Marin and over two months, 500,000, so like a, a third of the value of their house just wiped out, gone. And I was like, yeah, I'm not selling your house in the city because you're never going to get that equity back. I was just really heartbreaking to see people want to leave the city who then couldn't. Um, now San Francisco has normalized to pre-COVID prices, which is great. Rents are coming back. It's awesome. 
Um, so it's rebounding, which is great to see. Um, San Francisco has its own plight, though, on top of that. They're not punishing criminals. Um, I could go punch someone in the face and take her, take somebody's purse or their wallet and cops. I could do it right in front of a cop and the cop doesn't have the right to go after me. Like, that's really crazy. Smash and grab is not a crime anymore. So San Francisco has fallen a long way from how it once was. And it was never known for being an especially clean city, but it's even worse than it ever has been. So San Francisco's plight, um, it, it has a long way to go. And I, I, I don't see an end in sight to it because the voting base are renters who have really, they don't care about the long-term values of the property. Most of the people who own real estate in San Francisco don't live there and they don't have a large enough vote to really change the politics there. Let's call it that. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Gotcha. That's a pretty rough situation. Yeah. I, I w- It breaks my heart. You know, I wish for me, even when I have business meetings in the city, I'm like, how soon can I get out of here? Because I just don't want to fix a broken window. Like, <laughs> That's the reality of San Francisco. And I think, you know, it's, it's probably got to hit rock bottom where nobody has a convention there going forward. I mean, Morgan Stanley, um, I'm sorry, the, uh, the medical one, that one's gone. Um, I know there are a bunch of other, I think Oracle opted out. If I'm quoting this correctly, you know, a lot of them are just saying no thanks to San Francisco as a convention destination. Is, is that just because the crime is really bad? It's the crime and it's the homelessness. There's I mean, the streets are dirty. I, I don't want to get too graphic with your podcast. I'm going to try to keep it clean, but it's just dirty there. Um, so it, it's just not a pleasant place to go. It's a shame. So as, as you're trying to kind of work your way through COVID, you're trying to keep your head about you and trying to <clears throat> launch a new company that is uh, a radical departure. Uh, you're working inside of an industry that... Um, has boat anchors hanging out behind it, trying to slow things down. Um, so can you, can you walk us through a little bit about the resistance that you ran into in trying to make some of these changes? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of it was, oh, you want to displace the realtor? And I'm like, no, 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 friend, friend, friend. To the point where even NAR was very clever and they're like, we're going to have her go on stage and talk about referrals that she's going to track referrals. I mean, it was very clever how we first got positioned. Um, and then this year, um, Tyler was like, I always thought you'd go after title. And I'm like, oh, permission to go do what blockchain should be doing. He's like, yeah, go. I was like, cool. Um, it was a matter of building a lot of goodwill and saying, no, no, I'm, I'm a friend of yours. Let's figure this out together. I think changing that dialogue earlier this year um, I was just very matter of fact going to my peers, brokers, everybody in the industry. I even presented at the Federal Government Technology Committee. And I said, look, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for us as an industry. I refuse to do it, just me. So I need your help to help build this. I need you to tell me how this is accretive to your business practice. And I think that 
mindset shift in my own head. I mean, that's how I've always felt, but because I was, it was like rapid fire. It was like, you know, bombing over Europe, like every day of my life. It was like, it was like, like the whole industry was like, we hate you. And I'm like, that's cool. I'm just trying to like protect the industry. Thanks guys. And it felt really good. So like to just come at it and just tell people at this point, we're building this together. Like, and I need your help. That dialogue now is, is a beautiful thing. People are like, yes, we want to do this. I'm like, cool, let's do it together. Cause I'm tired of being frustrated and you need to protect your book of business. So let's do that together. Talk, talk to me about the actual technology. So you have a patent pending blockchain. You said, is it structurally similar to the Bitcoin blockchain that people might be familiar with, or are you taking a different approach? Are there coins involved? Just what are the basics of this? Yeah. So what we did is we took every piece of property based on address and we gave it a unique identifier on blockchain and we just kind of put it on the shelf, right? Because let's go back to 2018, 2019, um, didn't know which blockchain was going to win out. Still don't. We originally built it on Ethereum and originally like every transaction was like two cents or a fraction of a cent. And then an ICO launched in China. And then the cost of a transaction went to like 73 cents, which does not a good day at work make, right? Like when the cost of doing business jumps like that, you're like, oh, this is not sustainable. So um, we had to start looking at taking this totally private. There are also other considerations, consumer protection. How How do you launch a product into a very protected industry with a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt and say, hey, everybody's records is public, cool. Like nobody, that doesn't go well. It's not a good conversation. So we had to make this more enterprise ready. So now I'll tell you, we're on Zua. It's spelled X-O-O-A. It's the preferred NFT marketplace. Amazon endorsed them. I found them before they were endorsed by Amazon. Just want to say that, like, don't want to pat my own back too much, but I do feel pretty cool. feel pretty nerdy about that one. Um, So- we're building on top of them because they've thought about more things that I could ever think about as far as like, how do you build a marketplace? And that's off the shelf. So we're actually like started, we're stripping out a lot of this stuff. So by next week, I promise Canada to spin off their own node for Canadian records, which I never thought would happen actually, because Canada, again, her majesty's records, and you have to have permission from all the municipalities. It's the opposite of here. Um, and so they actually asked for it and I was like, cool, like, I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm going to stay in the U S like, so I'm just going to ship them a note and be like, here, have fun, go play. Um, so that is a matter of just stripping down a lot of the noise that's built into Zua on the NFT marketplace and just really like boiling it down to like the few component parts that are necessary for sharing data. Um, and so really what we're focused on is just drag and drop the data package in and say, this is the kind of data and this is who I am, who's listing it. Um, We are building into the process to make sure that everybody who either contributes data or takes down the data, being a buyer of the data has uh, satisfied SOC 2 audit requirements. So SOC 2 is for publicly traded companies. They have to pass certain protocols like be licensed, be bonded and have master service agreements with their vendors. So um, it's all about kind of the procedures and protocols going into it and understanding like the big picture, but the actual product itself, like if you saw it, you'd be like, that is, that is like stupid easy. Like really like that's your product. (laughs) Um, So that's, that's where we are today from a product point of view. 
Um, and we chose the platform to be, has to be super light, has to like not scare people when they look at it, first of all. And then um, it's a platform that we think can grow to scale because we know that every title company is in some kind of a development phase. They're not as far along as you'd think, given like the obvious nature of blockchain. So they're all trying to figure out what data will go on blockchain. And I had a friend who's a big investor in the space. He's like, Teresa, you know, what you're doing is stupid because every title company already has this. And I'm like thinking, and I'm thinking, and I finally realized like, you know, yeah, they are, but here's the thing. It would be an antitrust violation if one title company did all the transactions in the United States. And that's probably the next industry that's going to get the sledgehammer to them. So the idea here is that all these companies have technology and blockchain and data, but no, not one of them can rule the whole industry. So now it's more obvious than ever with the current administration and the focus on antitrust violation to make sure that consortia really is the piping that allows like all these different title companies to share data and all of these different capital markets, the secondary and primary lenders to share data. So we really feel, I really feel grateful to have, you know, quote unquote stalled or failed on it for two years um, to now be at this place where we can kind of put our heads up and go, wait, what's everybody doing? What are you doing over there? Oh, how do we all work together? And so the, the climate has also changed where before like two or three years ago, title companies were sniffing around consortium and then they're like, oh, we'll just build it inside. Whereas now they're like, oh, okay. Like we get it. We have to, we're going to play ball. So it's, it's really cool. Um, just building something. And then Zua allows for that interoperability between the different technologies. And that was really key to us. Like it has a Zapier integration. It integrates with Oracle and with AWS. So, uh, and Ethereum as well, if we want to go to completely decentralized at a later time. Yeah. Have, have you ever done a loan on a house that's in a cryptocurrency yet? Um, I actually, uh, let's see, like I think four or five years ago, I was the first real estate broker in California to be able to move unlimited amounts of cryptocurrency um, for housing, which means like I had to go through four level of compliance hurdles to be like anti-money anti laundering, AML, KYC, all those banking protocols and passed. And, um, you know, now I would say they overpaid for their house because they liquidated <laughs> A lot of Bitcoin. <laughs> um, they're probably thinking, wow, that was an overpaid, overpriced condo or house. Um, so yes, that, so BitPay is phenomenal at that because what, so Richard Branson backed BitPay, BitPay back in the day. Um, and so when you're going into a purchase, how it works is you'd say, oh, um, I'm going to buy this house. And the people at BitPay are like, cool, got it. We'll be on the lookout. And then you'll tell them your wallet and then you'll say, okay, this is the point where I'm going to sell. I'm going to sell today, right? You, you're aiming to get the high value. Now, if, and they lock in the price, if there's price fluctuation, if it goes down, they'll cover the loss. If it goes up, they make the spread. That's their business model. So that is the way to handle crypto. And then the, the seller through the settlement process can either opt to take the Bitcoin or the Ethereum, or they can settle in fiat currency and trade back into dollars if that's what they would like to do. So that's how that works. Um, some lenders are okay looking at Bitcoin as an asset. So what that means is like the, um, the down payment for the house 
would then be in crypto and they they understand just like if you have stock like if you're trading if you're liquidating an IBM uh, position in your portfolio, you show them the statement and saying, we're going to liquidate this and we have to show the proof of funds have cleared before we get the final sign off to fund the loan. So it's, it's, it's being seen now as a very similar process to the way we look at stocks um, and securities. I am still trying to figure out why a blockchain is a better system for this than just a standard database. You, you mentioned that the NFTs of the information will allow it to better reflect the realities of the, uh, the, the actual condition of the assets. So that, I mean, pe- people who aren't white aren't necessarily uh, penalized for that fact. You've also mentioned that there's an antitrust angle to it as well. Is it mostly those two considerations or is there something else that hasn't come up in the conversation yet for choosing a blockchain over just you starting a database company that tries to compile this information and sells it? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's that's the biggest thing. Like, who needs another database? Like, blow your brains out, right? Like, I need another <laughs> place to store records. Like, no, no one, no one wants that. And most CTOs, are, like, in 2019, they're like, I don't need more work. Thank you so much. Have a great day, right? And so we had to build a product that really like shows the use for this. Um, let me give an example because I get asked this, especially as it pertains to the MLS. So the multiple listing service, um, a lot of people originally like, yeah, I'll be on blockchain. That's amazing. The MLS folks is this intricate web of data, of information that is the backbone of the largest asset class. Housing and real estate represents 25% of the GDP of this country. And I am a firm believer that most of that is supported by the MLS. If you look at any other country in the world that does not have an MLS or clean data records, it takes six months to a year to a decade to settle a real estate trade. And the fact that we as a country can sell properties within three days, seven days, 30 days, settle in 45 days, maybe 60, right? That's unheard of anywhere else in the world. And that cycle creates value. It creates prosperity, right? That moment kicks off $80,000 of goods and services that happens within the house. All right. So that's my that's my spiel about how much I love MLS. Um, and no, the MLSs don't pay me to say that. So <laughs> here's, here's what I'm saying. So why is blockchain good to answer your question? How is it a good use, right? It's an immutable ledger. So once an entry goes in, in theory, it's not tampered with, right? So when that happens, so let's look at this case that I finally just, it it was awful. This, it was like an interfamily sale of a building with land that was being used. It's up in Humboldt County. This is not my proudest moment as a professional. It was weed. Okay. It was like a weed farm on it. It was a referral, did a favor for a family. It blew up. It was awful. The sponsor of the deal committed suicide, like seriously, like worst Worst deal of my life. Like how many people are going to be like, oh, like 24 hours before closing, this guy like walks off a building. I'm like, are you kidding? Like I almost got my paycheck. Thanks a lot. You know? (laughs) You feel a compassion radiating through the screen here. Yeah, as it should. I mean, this was like the worst six months of my life working with this family. I got to say. Anyway. Okay. So at the beginning, and this tells you how bad it is. In the beginning of the deal, the listing agent, she's a great broker. Okay. Like I actually came to like her a lot. But she comes to me and she says on the phone, she goes, Teresa, you know, I think it's only fair if I take more of the commission than you because I've been working with this family for a really long time. And I'm like, 
you, you didn't know me until 24 hours ago, but I've been working with them as well for a really long time trying to figure this out. And so like it goes to attorneys and they finally like settle and go, oh, Teresa should earn her 2.5 and she'll get her 2.5. Had she changed? So here's the thing. When you put in the commission in the MLS and you say what it is, it's a legally binding contract. This is, this is true. The consumer never sees this. And this is being investigated by the Department of Justice for antitrust, like whatever. Thank you. But the thing is, she could have gone into the MLS and changed it. And I never would have been the wiser because I didn't have access to her MLS because I'm down in the Bay Area and she's up in Humboldt. She's five hours up. Another antitrust issue. Anyway, let's let's sail right past that. So had, had she changed it, I never would have known. And this is an example of where blockchain could have been very helpful. If there's a, a ledger, like a ride-along sidecar to the MLS, the MLS is very robust. I don't want to duplicate that. But if there was just this, just this other thing here, like the secretary taking notes, like, yep, we see that she put in the commission at 2.5. And then if she had changed it, oh, she changed it this time. That is the magic of blockchain. As, as boring as that sounds, just to have a ledger of when things happen that's immutable, that is, that's the promise of blockchain. So for, say, for example, my dishwasher, let's go to that. It broke. That's an NFT. And that's not fungible, non-fungible token. But then I go and fix it the next day, or I get the tradesman to come out like in, in two or three days. Then there's a record that it was fixed. That's the beautiful part. And then we know at the timestamp, it's not going to be edited. Um, it's, it, it, it's very boring when you break it down, like a ledger entry that cannot be changed. Like that's all it is that makes it, that that's blockchain. No, I, I think that it, largely boils down to trust and just expediency, like by reducing the friction involved in these transactions, it allows a lot more investment dollars to flow into the space. It allows people to liquidate assets they don't want any longer, much more quickly. As, as you, you mentioned in, in other countries, the process is far more onerous and, and far more involved, which means that pricing isn't, isn't as accurate, which means that people can't make as good investments. They can't plan long-term. Like Lots of things change when there's that much gunk in the system. And I think that the case you've made is very compelling for the blockchain ameliorating many of those problems. And, and trust is another one as well. I mean, much of what undergirds currency, for example, which is a pillar of civilization is just trust. It's just people trusting that this asset will be worth something tomorrow. And the blockchain by underpinning this with a different system with math and with energy, I think that it has the potential to transform many of these systems in ways that look very boring when you break them down. It's just, she can't change the commission percentage. Now that matters a lot more than you might think if you've never studied how trust impacts the way economics works. If people can't trust each other, the whole process becomes far, far more difficult. But if you can just trust a person's handshake or an entry in the ledger in the, in the blockchain, then whole vistas of economic activity become possible that weren't before. Yeah, totally. And so let's go back in like economics and like where, how did this all start, right? Real estate, going back to your point of like the importance of the real estate in a transaction, right? Like we used to live in villages or towns where we all knew each other right. and it was very quaint and you grew up for generations. Like this was my grandfather's real, you know, this is who they trusted. Oh, cool. We are now so transitory. If, if COVID showed us nothing, we can work from anywhere. Right. So we don't know who's next door anymore. Do we, we don't know who we're buying this property from. So we need this level of transparency and trust. And that's why we're going to these data systems. It's the reality of our life. Like, I have no idea where, you know, there's this joke. Somebody was like, well, in closing your presentation, you should tell people, oh, I'll be in this 
this part of the hall, come find me after your presentation at this trade show. I was like, yeah, I don't know where I'm going to be in 10 minutes from now, let alone like after this presentation. Like that's, that's my life. Right. And I think that's true for a lot of people. You don't know where you're going to land up. You can move anywhere. And so, um, you know, we have to figure out new ways to build trust with other humans, especially in an age where most of our identity is tied up in some kind of a digital footprint. Absolutely. Well, in the closing minutes here, do you have any final thoughts on the future of real estate, how it interacts with the blockchain or any of these technologies? I have had a great time here on your show. And I would say um, it's, you know, if you have ideas, if you have suggestions, if you're in the real estate fintech, insure tech space, please um, find Thomas Fry and hunt me down. I would love to know your thoughts, your suggestions. Um, this is an ongoing dialogue because this is this is the world's largest asset class. And it matters a lot whether you're listening to this podcast um, halfway around the world or if you're down the street. The world's economy in large depends on the stability of this asset class, like it or not. So if you have suggestions for how we build this out, please do reach out because um, no matter where you are, it really does touch everyone's financial picture. And, and how should people get in touch with you? Uh, for me, gosh, um, I would say find me on LinkedIn, I think would probably be the best way. Um, so uh, name is Teresa Grobecker and you can just find me on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, be great to communicate with folks in the space. Fantastic. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Teresa. Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>